Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Well, you're very welcome to this evening's lecture, the title of which is Philosophy and Vision. And the subtitle, which is more challenging, is that without vision, the people perish, which is taken from Proverbs. So what is vision and why is it so important is the subject of the talk, along with some further questions. For example, are we born with vision or can it be developed? Is vision a constant or does it change as we get older? How does vision relate to goals? Is it somehow connected with our upbringing or our education? Is it dependent on the company we keep? Do I have a vision? And if I do or don't, what part should it or does it play in my life? Usually we recognize others as being great visionaries. You probably find that we would refer to the great business people like the Michael O'Leary's or the great political leaders like Mandela or Gandhi. And we may think that vision is only concerned with these people on the world stage. And just something to do with a select few. Well, these would be false ideas about vision, but they have become accepted as the norm, really. When speaking of visionary, we're usually referring to someone other than myself, someone on the world stage. Now, the truth is that we all have a vision, whether we know it or not, and we're following it whether we know it or not. And if the vision is erroneous, and small or limited, then life will be accordingly. So we could look at vision as something that's causal and our life is the effect. So that might provoke a few questions. For example, how big is the life? How free is it? How satisfying is my life? How happy? So vision is a matter of some concern for every one of us because it's operating in us whether seen or unseen. Now the title of the talk is Philosophy and Vision. So philosophy is about the love of wisdom. So it would be good to see what the wise have to say about vision. And the first statement I have here is from a teacher referred to as Shankaracharya, whom the school has been in contact with for over 35 years. And this is one answer to a question about the subject of vision. He says that man must use his intelligence to visualize the true will of the Absolute and act accordingly in full consideration of the universe, transcending all limitations. So if you examine that statement, the first aspect is that we must use our intelligence. Like we need to apply ourselves. To visualize the true will of the Absolute is really about discovering my true purpose. The will of the Absolute is in effect my true purpose. And the idea is to set about to discover what that is. To act accordingly is self-explanatory, it's just to actually enact it and to live it. 
And then the challenging parts are the next two parts, which are in full consideration of the universe. So it has to be for the good of all, and not just for the good of me and mine. And then the last statement, transcending all limitations. Personally, I find that the most challenging, because I think it's one thing to have a sense of purpose or a sense of vision. It's something else then to transcend all the limitations of fears and doubts and the practicalities of life that might get in the way. It requires a little backbone. I often find myself suffering from wishbone, which is like having a sense of knowing what one should do, but maybe not enacting it fully. Now the subtitle, Without Vision the People Perish, this suggests that vision is concerned with not only the means, but also with the consequences or the end of all things. Stephen Covey, a well-known business guru, wrote what's now a fairly famous management book called The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. And one of those habits he refers to as beginning with the end in mind. In other words, if we're clear from the start how we wish to end up, there's a greater chance that we will reach the target. If you're very clear about how you want to finish something, there's a high probability that you'll reach that objective, that target. And again, one would hope this provokes some questions, like what do we want to achieve? What is the vision for this life? Are we clear from the start? If you even take a mundane activity, like going into town to do some shopping, if you compare going into town with a really clear aim as to exactly where you're going and what you want, and compare that to just going into town without any aim. In the first instance, there's clarity, and there's a likelihood that you'll achieve the task in a short amount of time and you'll get home fairly swiftly. And no doubt you've all experienced a second situation where you can wander around town all day and you end up with either getting nothing or a lot of what you don't need or didn't want in the first place. Now that's the simple activity of popping into town to do some shopping. But if we compare that to or use that as an analogy to look at the whole of life, that wouldn't be rewarding or satisfying. So vision in terms of life becomes very important. There's a story, a famous story of Croesus and Solon. This is said to highlight this aspect of this clarity of how we wish to end our life. Croesus was a king with control over a vast kingdom and he was considered the wealthiest of men, owner of great palaces and he enjoyed lots of fame and fortune, great fortune, huge quantities of gold and silver. And even by today's standards, the very wealthiest of man. Now, meeting with Solon, Solon was said to be one of the seven sages. Solon was known as the lawgiver. Solon was famous for his wisdom, and he'd also traveled the world, so he met quite a lot of people, famous people. So when he met Croesus, Croesus asked him who was the most fortunate of men that he had met. And in his own mind, he was thinking that Solon should pronounce him, himself, Croesus, the most fortunate of men. 
So Solon answered speaking of other characters like Tellus. And what was common with all the different characters he spoke of is they were all dead. Now this vexed our friend Creasus greatly. And Solon said to him, To me you seem to be very rich and to be king of many people. But I cannot answer your question before I learn that you have ended your life well. The very rich man is not more fortunate than the man who has only his daily needs, unless he chances to end his life with all well. So how we end our life will determine whether or not we've lived well. So vision then has these two aspects. The first aspect is how we live, and the second is how we end. Have we used our intelligence, or have we squandered our substance in some way? Now, this brings us to an important point. To have a vision for something, we need to know what it is. But there's no point in having a vision that I'm going to turn a sheep into a watchdog. Nature won't allow it. So you can have all the vision you like of that type, but if it's going against nature, it won't allow it. So that would encourage us to inquire into what is man? What is our essential nature? Because vision has to be in accordance with our nature. Both our essential nature and particular. According to scriptures, our true and essential nature is knowledge, consciousness and bliss. Elsewhere we're told that we're made in the image and likeness of God. If this is so, then the vision can be limitless. The vision can be anything we want it to be. And the purpose of life is to realize that truth about myself. So the reason for having the vision is the realization of the truth about myself, and the vision itself can be limitless because of the truth about myself. And our nature will allow this. There's no limit, because the true nature is limitless. In fact, not realizing this will be the source of some misery. In fact, misery might be an indication we're going about things the wrong way. We might be trying to do something against our nature. Or the vision, even if it's unknown and unseen, may be quite distorted. There's a very famous teacher called Gurdjieff. He's born in the late 1800s and he ran a school for self-development just outside Paris. Very interesting character. If you've read anything about Gurdjieff, you'll have found him very interesting and entertaining and a bit unorthodox. And he's speaking to one of his students about this idea of understanding your true nature. Now the student's name is Fritz a man called Fritz Peters. And Gurdjieff is looking out the window of this institution and Fritz is standing beside him. And on one occasion Gurdjieff told Fritz to look out of the window where there was an oak tree. And he asked him how many acorns there were on the tree. Fritz responded that there were really likely to be thousands. 
Gurdjieff then inquired as to how many of those acorns were likely to become oak trees. The boy guessed that perhaps five or six might, or maybe not even that many. Gurdjieff then explained the essential nature of his teaching by comparing it to the possibilities that nature provides. Perhaps only one, perhaps not even one. We must learn from nature. Nature makes many acorns, but the possibility to become a tree exists for only a few. It is the same with man. Many men are born, but only a few grow. People think this is a waste, and think nature a waste. Not so. The rest become fertilizer. Go back into the earth and create the possibility for more acorns, more men. Once in a while, more trees. More real men. Nature always gives, but only gives a possibility to become real oak or real man. We must make the effort. Do you understand? This is my work. This institute is not for fertilizer, but for real men, for real man only. But you must also understand that fertilizer is also necessary for nature. So we all have a choice. <laughs> Maybe not a very attractive choice, but the choice really is to grow and develop and realize one's true nature, or we can be fertilizer. I don't know if you picked up the strange English in that statement. He was Armenian, and the English is actually a broken type of English. If you didn't notice that, I'm in trouble. So the challenge we face is to use the opportunity, while here in this world, in this creation, to realize that in truth we're beyond it. Or to realize this true nature, this truth about myself. We each have a particular individual nature. This is our particular unique qualities and talents. But unfortunately we also have unhelpful traits and tendencies. So this is, if you like, what we have to offer on one hand, our qualities and talents and skills, and what we have to overcome on the other, which is the traits and tendencies. And in a way it's like we have a lot of offering and overcoming to do. And the more we offer and overcome, the more we discover this true self, this true nature. So it's in offering fully on one side and overcoming on the other that this discovery of one's true nature is it's at that point. The more offering and overcoming on oneself, the greater capacity to help others. So if you take example like Gandhi would have uplifted every Indian, but his primary working surface was on himself. The traits and tendencies are also the obstacles, because if they're strong, they become the barriers. And these would be particular to each of us, and they could be things like fear, or doubt, or laziness. And the most deadly one of all is in the phrase, you have to be practical. People who say this reduce the vision and believe that the smaller the vision, the more practical it is. We need to make the ideal practical.
and not the practical, the ideal. Another obstacle is a false image or vision I have of myself and of mankind. If I think I'm limited and separate, I will view everybody else. In fact, I'll view the whole of mankind as limited and separate. We need to have a true image of myself and of mankind. Only then will we have a true vision for myself and for mankind. Now we each find ourselves in particular situations. As Emerson, the American essayist, put it, we each have a particular plot of ground to till. And what he said of that was that no kernel of nourishing corn can come to him but through his toil bestowed on that plot of ground which is given to him to till. I don't know about you, but I certainly have experienced envying other people's plots or maybe jealous of someone's plot. Or we may think we deserve a different plot, less troublesome plot. You can wake up many a morning despondent about your plot. And there's things we love on our plot and there's things we avoid. But it's very striking when you read Emerson, he's so clear and so precise. No kernel of nourishing corn can come to us but through our own toil bestowed on that particular plot of ground that we each have to face. Now just turning to the question of vision itself, what exactly is it? It's a type of seeing, but it's not an ordinary seeing as with the eyes. And ironically, it's not seeing the future. It's not looking off ahead into the future. Vision is more concerned with seeing the present and appreciating all the potentialities here now in the present. It involves the whole person, the body, mind and heart. And of these three, the heart is most important. Vision is more a case of where we're seeing from than the object of seeing. It's like a thief and a saint could be looking at the same beautiful painting. One full of covetousness, the other full of awe and wonder. But they're both looking at the same thing. And the state of the heart determines which. What is predominant in the heart is guiding the life. It's like an internal compass. And this is for better or for worse. Now we said at the beginning that true vision already resides in our hearts. We arrive with the software already installed. However, it may have become covered over. And if it's been covered over, it will be with the practicalities of life. And the covering creates a distorted view and it limits things down to a life revolving around me and mine. Now only when true vision is aroused in us will these limits dissolve and the circle expand. How is it aroused? Well the first element is the seeing of the need is the impulse. So 
for true vision to be appreciated, the first point is an appreciation of the need, seeing the need. Hence the importance of the heart. Because a heart that's full of its own concerns can't see the need for anything else. It's very difficult to see past its own concerns. The heart needs to be open and full of love. Otherwise there can't be a response. Seeing the need draws from us the response. We couldn't help it. If the need is seen, the response will come. It couldn't be stopped as such. And we each have particular talents, as we've said. The entrepreneur is his, and the Mother Teresa's of this world have theirs, and you and I have ours. Particular skills and particular talents. And vision is about seeing the need and responding with those set of talents, whatever they are. And it's different to ambition. Ambition is driving, is about desire and driving towards some result. So ambition is like putting a demand on the creation. Vision is more seeing a need and responding. And sometimes the lines between those two get quite blurred. If you take a simple example of opening a door for someone, if we don't see the need, we remain seated. It doesn't mean we lack the capacity or the intelligence. In fact, we may have even designed the door and made it and put it up. But if we don't see the need, there will be no response. Questions for us would be, what is the need? What do I have to offer? Am I responding? Now looking at vision in terms of what it does. The first thing that vision does is it unites people and it also unites the individual. So the clearer the vision, the more united the, the person. So it unites both the individual within himself or herself and it unites groups of people. It lends purpose and provides direction. So if one is off direction, one simply reconnects with the vision and gets back on track. So it provides direction. Vision acts as a guide. So it guides all the ever-changing sequence of events. But the idea is that you hold fast to vision, and it's vision that is the guide. The implications are if the vision isn't clear, then we're guideless or rudderless. Vision lends energy. We're inclined to, if you look at the great people on the world stage, we're inclined to think they were fortunate to be born with lots of energy. It's certainly a striking feature of the great political and religious leaders and business leaders. They seem to have buckets of energy. But the energy comes from the vision. It's the reverse. With the clarity of vision comes the energy. You may get a sense of this sometimes when you suddenly become very clear about doing something. You seem to have an added capacity to actually enact it. Whereas when there's confusion and agitation, that capacity doesn't seem so readily available. So vision lends energy. And the bigger the vision, the greater the energy. Because when our hearts are full of concerns with me and mine, 
the heart constricts and contracts and so the energy is depleted when the vision is great and big and it's bigger than me and mine the energy to meet it comes vision inspires oneself and others it also lends courage and faith especially in adversity without vision we could fall at the first hurdle or somewhere along the track and if you think of people like Mandela 27 years in prison I'm sure he didn't have that in his plan that's a long time to be steeped in adversity now I'm not sure what shape he was in when he went into prison but he definitely came out of prison an enlightened man and seemed to be full of love for his captors and so something sustained that something sustained that through those 27 years and the sense I have is that there was no loss of the sense of vision and the sense of purpose behind what he was doing there and why he was there vision helps to expand the view I think it was Gandhi who said the entire creation is one family now to say that would be something I'm sure we could all say that and we could maybe talk about it but to actually see it and feel it and believe it that there's just the creation is one family would be quite something so vision would assist us to expand the view in that way we can have a vision for anything my family business the nation the question is do we have what is the vision for my life what is the vision for my children my business what are the true needs in these areas and are we responding now there's two misconceptions that I'd like to highlight with regard to vision one is that it's often spoken of as the same as goals so goals are specific aims and they're more like the steps on a journey and they're measurable in space and time whereas vision is what guides those goals and would stay constant so if you take a commercial example the Rolls-Royce car the vision for the Rolls-Royce car is the best car in the world but the cars keep changing but the vision has remained as a constant guide that the producers seek to adhere to but the cars keep changing they keep coming up with slightly different versions there's a young chap who went to school with one of my children and when I met him first he was nine or ten he said he was going to be a vet and he went through school and all the time I knew him he was going to be a vet and a very strong idea that he was going to be a vet he failed his leaving so the following year I asked him how is he doing he said I'm still going to be a vet and he went to the Institute and resat the leaving I asked him after that occasion he said no I failed my leaving again or he didn't get the required points so I said what are you up to now he says no I'm going to be a vet and he's now in Budapest doing veterinary science in Budapest so I was always struck by this constancy of purpose he was absolutely certain all the way it didn't really matter what happened failure success differences coming going he had no concept of ending up in Budapest but what he was clear about was this singularity of purpose he's going to be a vet
And the vision is like that. It's a clarity of purpose that's singular, that guides, regardless of what's happening on the ground. And he's very close to finishing now. He'll be a vet very shortly. Another misconception is that vision and dream are the same thing. And in the way that Martin Luther King Jr. used the word dream, they may be. But my experience of dream would not be the same as vision. So dream is not vision. Dream is more a speculation about the future. It's full of ifs. And it's a rather lazy state of affairs. The dreamer is disconnected from the present. So the dreamer is disconnected from action. You can't see what he's dreaming about, you cannot see being enacted. It's just literally just a dream. The true visionary is connected to the immediate present, so the immediate action. So if you wanted to examine another's or your own sense of vision, you would look to how they act. You'd look at what they give their time to. Today, tonight, now. Vision would determine all our actions. So the dreamer talks but does not act. Now there is a single vision for the entire universe. And the single vision is, if you look into your own hearts, you'll see it very clearly, which is happiness, freedom, health and prosperity for all. It could be hard to find a human being who's not interested in happiness, freedom, health and prosperity. So this is the single universal vision for all of mankind. And the idea is that we each contribute towards this universal vision. So we each have our particular talents and skills and qualities, and we each should be contributing towards that universal vision. That is working for people's true happiness, true freedom, true health, and true prosperity. And this could mean a lot of things. It might mean doing things we don't want to do, facing things we don't want to face. Pursuing an individual vision against the universal vision will produce misery. And in fact, it will produce division. How we go about this? I've taken a little statement from Martin Luther King here. He says that not everyone can achieve fame, but everyone can achieve greatness, and that it is through service this greatness is realized. So in a way, it's about serving humanity. It's how can I serve humanity in this way that will bring this happiness, freedom, health and prosperity for all. And it could sound daunting, how do I serve humanity? The tendency is to think, you know, little me, how could I possibly serve humanity? But we can serve humanity by serving the person in front of us. If you think of the different roles you've played today, the parent, husband, wife, employer, employee, son, daughter, or neighbour, I mean, there is opportunity, endless opportunities, one after another, for serving humanity in each of those roles. If these parts, which are the parts on our particular plot, 
are played fully and artistically and to the very best of our ability, then our happiness and freedom and health are increased. And so also would the overall happiness, prosperity, freedom and health be increased. And in this way we will be contributing to that great vision, that great universal vision for mankind. Now the way forward, what is the way forward? Well the first aspect is to try and discover or reconnect with the vision that's in your heart. If it is true that it was in your heart and it was there from the very beginning, then it's a matter of rediscovering, reconnecting. What is that vision? And if we can't do that, if we have trouble discovering what the vision is, what my true purpose is, then it's about discovering what your duty is and attending to that without limit. So in every situation, what is my duty and remove all the limits. And in that way, there would be a possibility of coming to understand the vision or maybe discovering it in some way. But there's no real room for sitting around waiting or wondering. I'll have to take a year or two off to discover my vision. It's really a work in progress. But the idea is to reconnect with vision. And we're told that at a young age, around the age of 16, it formed in our hearts. I don't know if that age is absolutely exact or precise, but it's a young age, somewhere between 16 and 18, it forms in our hearts. It's a sense of idealism, or a sense of how am I going to contribute, or how I am going to contribute. What mark am I going to make on the world? And as life moves on, the so-called practicalities take over and the vision may get covered, or possibly even forgotten. It just gets covered over with job, money, mortgage, wife, children, things, family, and before you know where you are, this sense of idealism is gone away down to the bottom somewhere. And there it may sit. Have we sold ourselves short? Have we stayed true to our vision? What did we want to do with our life? Are we doing that? Are we doing what we love? I was in a company recently doing some work and we were working with a team of people who weren't getting on very well. There's one particular man that everybody else in the organization thought was very distant, distant sort of chap. So I was having a meeting with him and I said, you know, do you realize that everyone that you work with thinks you're very distant. He says, I'm not distant. I says, well, all your colleagues think you're distant. He said, distant? No, no, no. I just hate working here. <laughs> I'm not distant. So, it was in the worst place. He was in the regulations aspect of a pharmaceutical firm. And I said, what would you love to do? And he said, I'd love to be a farmer. I mean, he couldn't have been further away from farming. And he was miserable. So, are we doing what we love? When I asked him, why are you not farming? He immediately started to list off all the practicalities. Well, 
and he suddenly adopted quite a serious accountant-like face and started to list off all the reasons why he couldn't think of being a farmer. But when he said it first, he lit up. He wasn't distant. So it's about looking into one's heart and seeing what is it that we love. That's our plot of ground. That's where we can make this contribution. Mr. McLaren, the founder of the School of Philosophy, at the age of, I think, 16, was said to have been walking by a lake. And just the, the idea that truth is something that could be discovered, and once discovered, could be taught. So this idea came to him at 16. And he resolved at 16 that at the age of 21, he would start a school. And apparently at the age of 21, he started a school, which is now the school of philosophy throughout the world. But it's just an idea in the heart that forms, and in some cases it's followed through fully. Now we, or man, has a very special place in nature. We have a very special place because we have a choice. No other creature can choose. You know, the dog can't come in and say, I've had enough of this dogging business, and I'm going to go and become a farmer, <laughs> or work in a pharmaceutical firm. So other creatures are bound to fulfill their nature. They don't have any choice. They have to live out their nature, whereas we have a choice. We can opt out, for instance, whereas no other creature can decide just to opt out. And each of us has a, a function and a purpose. And to live truly and fully, we must discover what that purpose is and fulfill it. This won't guarantee a trouble-free life. In fact, staying true to vision does not mean we won't be challenged. In fact, it might mean we have a life of all sorts of calamities. If you think of Mandela, if you think of any of these greats, their lives weren't necessarily smooth just because they stayed faithful to their work. But vision does lend the strength to keep going despite the obstacles. Now, just to conclude, I'd just like to finish with those words from the Shankaracharya that I began with, which is, man must use his intelligence to visualize the true will of the Absolute and act accordingly in full consideration of the universe, transcending all limitations. Otherwise, as Gurdjieff put it, we would be fertilizer. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. So really it's over to you now to just question or bring up any aspect of what was presented for discussion or anything at all really. I'd just like to ask you about when you said that you're born with your vision. It sounds just a little bit like predestination. Are you bound by the vision or do you create the vision in the life? 
Now the understanding here is that division forms in our hearts when we're young. So I was telling someone at the break there that I was with a, a group of people recently from an organization that looks after people with disabilities. And I was talking about this subject of vision. And the CEO of this organization spoke of when she was 16 years of age, she was in a schoolyard and she saw an itinerant girl being mistreated by some older students in the school she was attending. And she remembers saying to herself, when I'm older, I'm going to sort that out. She had crystal clear memory of deciding, as a very young girl, that when she was older, this is the work she was going to engage in. And she's CEO of this organization now that looks after people with disability. It's something that forms in the heart when we're young. And it will be very particular to our nature, particular to our individual skills, talents, qualities. You could change it because you might not stay faithful to it. It may never get a look in, it may be buried in all the practicalities of life. But it would be something that's very particular to you and natural to you. It would be where your best comes out naturally. But it's something that forms at a very young age, whether we know it or not, apparently. And then we either connect with it and stay faithful to it, or we disconnect and it somehow loses its influence on the life. And the life then is influenced by something else. So you, you could lead a life without realizing the vision? Oh, absolutely. Yes, oh, absolutely, yeah. If you consider the number of people who say they don't love what they're doing, I mean, it's quite a high percentage of people who say, I don't love my work. I would meet a considerable amount who don't love what they're doing. They're working and they're making incomes and they may even be experiencing a level of success, but they don't love what they're engaged in and what they're doing. Can I ask you a question? What is the best way to realize your vision, to uncover your vision? What is the best way to do that? You can inquire. It, it would be self-inquiry. So you can inquire into it in a way like I've just been saying there. You can question what is it that you love doing. You could go and talk to someone else and they might help you uncover it. It might not be that easy to uncover. But you could inquire into it like what would you love doing? What need in this world lights you up? What need do you become very naturally enthusiastic about? What area do you think you have something really worthwhile to offer? You know, the young man I spoke to about becoming a vet, he was, as a very young child, crystal clear he was going to be a vet. And if you met him here, you'd see why. He loves animals, and that's his whole element. He comes alive working with animals and caring for animals. That's a very natural thing for him to do. You can inquire into it in a, in a questioning way. What is it that you love doing? If you had all the money in the world, what would you do tomorrow and you had to work? What do you turn your mind to when you're not working as such? You know, you're not involved in the so-called work situation. So I would think an inquiring, questioning approach to try and discover what's in there. Where do you feel you're at your best? That's all that comes right now. Just inquire into it with some questions. Like if God was the manager, where would he use you? 
where would you say that's the place, the best place in the world for that man is there? Where would that be? You could spend time thinking, oh, what can I do? And what do I have to do? And how am I going to do it? The real question is, what is the need and what do I have to offer? And it may not be something, you know, world stage-like. You know, Mother Teresa apparently came out of her convent and just began to work with people who are dying on the street. Visionary wouldn't necessarily mean starting with some great, magnificent, global idea, but it would be attending to the particular and very mindful of the big picture of the universe at the same time. But the work would be in the particular. Thank you. Okay. Sorry, just when you were saying there with regards to people with a vision, say as, for example, the gentleman who is a, a vet, wants to be a vet, if, for example, that never happened for him, yes, and this was something that was going to beat him up for the rest of his life, do you not think that sometimes vision can be a negative thing, not purely a positive thing? Certainly, I would find it hard to see it like that. I'd find my own experience and speaking with other people, it would be that when you disconnect from a sense of doing what you know you should be doing, it becomes more the negative. It seems to be having the faith and the courage to stick with and be true to yourself and true to what you know you should do seems to always produce a positive. I don't think it would mean it would all be plain sailing. It wouldn't be without its challenges, but I do think holding to vision would be staying true to yourself and true to your real purpose, regardless of the fears and the doubts and the, the trouble and strife. This young man wouldn't have beat himself up. He just held fast. He was unmoved by the failing of the exams, and he failed them three times. But, for example, you said that the gentleman who worked in the pharmacy yes. is unhappy in, in very, his life. Very, Purely because he didn't become a farmer. Well, he's still on the way now. I'm optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> but, for example... He could beat himself up over that. That's true. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like People who can be too single-minded about their vision yes. can lose sight of... What's good about their lives? Well, the misery for him is that he's caught in this dichotomy of he's engaged in work that is definitely not suitable to his nature, and he would love to be doing something else. Now, there's a gap in there, and the gap is full of fear, doubt, practicalities. He's afraid of his life to make the move. In fact, we said his wife would kill him. If he came home tomorrow and said, I'm going to be a farmer. So we had a discussion around how could he possibly move in this direction. It was a good discussion, and it did sow some seeds that might actually happen. But you're right insofar as either be true to what you know you should be doing, or you know, stop that nonsense and get on with what you are doing. But to stay in the middle, living a small existence, miserable, seems uh, an unhealthy and unholy yeah. lot. Exactly. Yeah, oh, very good. I think I'm one of those people who, at this stage of my life, sort of feels that the destiny is more to be in the fertilizer rather than the oak. Oh, I mean, good. I'm we found some fertilizer. <laughs> in the sense that fertilizer is good, exactly, that the fertilizer will, you know, 
help feed other would-be oaks, as it were. I suppose really what I'm trying to say is that I don't feel entirely fulfilled in, in my life, but I don't have a clear vision either. And I do constantly kind of question, get on just with what's in front of you and meet the daily need. And that's mm. really what I kind of work with now. Mm. This is kind of, a, I would say, a background of not exactly misery. And day-to-day -day is fine. At this stage of my life, should I be looking for a vision or actually just accepting and really just making the most of what comes up every day, you know, in work and the people I meet and, you know, that kind of thing? Yeah. If you remember in the talk, the way forward was under two headings. One was try and connect with the vision, that sense of vision and purpose that's within oneself. And I do feel and believe myself that is the direction, is to try and really connect with what is there. It's not about trying to discover something new, or oh, I must go and discover a new vision. It is in your heart now, and was there when you were young, and has remained there all the time. There will be dissatisfaction if we don't connect with it. Like what we've already heard there, you wouldn't beat yourself up over this, mm -hmm. but certainly some inquiry into what it is would be useful. Rather than a coasting kind of attitude, you know, you could coast from here to the grave. It doesn't sound the right thing to do. But if it's not clear, the second advice is from James Allen. I'm not sure if you're familiar with James Allen. He's the author of As a Man Thinketh. If you haven't come across that book, could I just recommend it to you highly? And in there he speaks of if when vision isn't clear, and it's very helpful because he encourages you to tend to your duty without limit. Now that is an interesting one because attending to your duty and then taking off all the limits could be just quite magnificent. If you think of all the roles we play, even at home, say, father, mother, brother, sister, if you take all those roles, employer, and suddenly decide to attend to them in a dutiful way with no limit, that may in itself lead to some discovery. We may find that currently we have limits and, you know, we work within certain frameworks and certain limits and we don't go much further. As I heard someone one day recently saying, you know, you have to draw the line somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you do have to draw any line. Maybe just removing lines and removing limits would be interesting. You know, to really live it to the full might be very helpful. And if you haven't read As a Man Thinketh, I would recommend it. It's my book of the month at the moment. Well, Brian, just thank you for your wisdom today. But it strikes me always that but it strikes me that your lecture is rather like a June day that nobody could argue with it I mean it's an absolutely wonderful philosophy but I'm thinking now of illness in all of our lives and I'm thinking particularly of an awareness in my own life and in other people's lives how illness presents and how there is not that absolute health, absolute knowledge, absolute consciousness, which is clearly the Garden of Eden, I suppose, that is in imaginations everywhere. So th that's my observation, that it's all very well, but 
is it achievable in one life or are we on some kind of journey towards that mm. and if we are maybe it starts today wouldn't it be lovely is my comment mm. wouldn't it be lovely those two things have come to me one is that I think we're all presented with challenges of one kind or another there are some lovely examples in particular of illness and if I could use John Paul II as a, I think a very good example of someone who literally proceeded with his duty and his responsibility and his sense of vision for the church that he was head of through all sorts of trouble and strife three attempts four attempts on his life and illness of an extreme nature really right to the very end I was always struck by his serenity and his peacefulness despite this incredible illness towards the very end everybody has different things to face in life generally it might be erroneous to think what we're talking about here is something far away to be considered over multiple lives we could engage in what was spoken of here this evening this evening in one case it just means shifting the limits and shifting the thinking just to begin to stop thinking of me and mine as the central reference point for everything and to shift that view if you consider for a moment if this room represented the entire creation and the universal objective or the universal vision is that every one of us enjoys freedom happiness health prosperity now the question is how do we each contribute to that right now that's it and you've got particular talent to do that we each have skill and talent to make everybody else in this room blissfully happy and everybody has talent to make everybody else in the room blissfully happy and if you then magnify that to an entire creation that's what the job is simple isn't it but it is you could see this is too far away and too remote and the word vision sounds like it's miles away but when you go out of here this evening or as you sit here this evening are you contributing to that universal vision right this very moment or are you doing something else vision is so important as you rightly said vision lends energy it said that God is the inexhaustible source of pure energy so I think when you're talking about vision there's a spiritual dimension to it the comment by the lady here about illness I think when Plato was facing death that's a wonderful dialogue how he's mm. facing up to this and the vision for the future even in that dreadful situation he was in so it, it's a spiritual force and I think the search for truth is very much connected with this how to avoid false leads in our lives and that we have to turn the light of our inner vision so we have to look inside ourselves as well as looking ahead you know I mean you have to sort of know where you're going and it's the same in inner ordinary lives Absolutely, yeah. to come back to your statement again vision lends energy and we need energy to carry us through difficulties in life and that's what we're drawing on the strength so thanks again Brian okay you're very welcome that aspect of energy I find fascinating because I find it utterly simple that 
if I'm thinking about myself and I'm concerned about myself, I seem to have no energy. And the moment it turns out onto something bigger than yourself, energy seems to come. And if you look at these great lives, their lives don't revolve around themselves. And they appear to have this enormous energy, enormous capacity. And it, it appears like it's something they have. There, It's a particular gift they have that's personal to them. But I have a theory. And that is, when the heart is open to the needs of others, that energy just flows. And it is spiritual. It is divine. And it does flow. But when it's full of just me, it does this, there's no room for anything else. So it kind of closes down in the energy system. Brian, thanks for the talk. And I was just wondering if your vision was just to be happy in life, could you still be a brilliant person? Or if you had a more definite vision, would it come to fruition? You know, so your aim is just to be happy. Would the rest of it fall into place? Not necessarily, no. No, no because, you see, everybody's aim is to be happy. That is the universal vision, to be happy and healthy and prosperous and free. So everybody in this room would agree that the aim is to be happy very easily, wouldn't they? Yeah, I would love to be happy, that's it. It's the how that brings in the vision. How do you achieve that happiness? So how does an individual, so-called, achieve the level of happiness, prosperity and freedom? Now, the proposition in this talk tonight is that it's achieved so-called individually by providing it for everyone else. So by setting out to provide the happiness, the prosperity and the freedom for everybody else, it's enjoyed here. In other words, if an individual works for the universal, that universal includes that so-called individual. Does that make sense? And if you could imagine a helicopter view of us all engaged in it like that, it would be just magnificent, wouldn't it? The vision is about the how. The aim is the same, happiness for all. And the aim of a happy life is a right aim, but it's how. Like under ignorance, you could go down all sorts of funny directions aiming for happiness. So it's to try and discover what is the truest, most useful way in which your particular skill and talent and quality can be engaged with or employed to bring that happiness and freedom for everybody. And that would make you very happy. But just sitting around thinking I'm going to be happy might do it. Is that alright? In the Jungian sense, the shadow side, the dark side, the original sin side, whatever way you want to express it. But I think it would be to speak excessively idealistically to try to paint the human story without looking at some very clever people, mm. knowledgeable people, like at the Nuremberg trials, there were professors of physics and all the rest, and they were saying, this is what I believed in. I believe mm. what I was involved in was right. Yes, no, indeed. By my vision. Yes. So 
I think that in our exploration here tonight, we haven't looked at the full picture of the true nature, the anthropology of mm. man. It seems to me when I look at myself and look at others, that there are other very fundamental capacities in the truth of our natures as we express ourselves. So I take it you're saying that's all coming from ignorance. We do have things to overcome, and there are tendencies and traits you could call dark. I probably personally wouldn't like to label them too dark, but they're definitely traits and tendencies to overcome. You can see those in your individual self, and you can see them expressed everywhere. Difficulties of greed and, and Addiction. selfishness and every possible dark aspect that we can look at. But that's what we have to overcome. You can't check yourself along the way. You can't check vision. Take, say, a character who exemplifies a dark side of things and someone who exemplifies the noble side. There's a checklist there. Vision that's truly noble will be universal. It won't be divisive. It certainly won't be segregating the population and killing off people. So there is a very simple checklist. It will not be centered around me, one individual. It will be truly universal. It will be involved in service to humanity of some kind. The checklist doesn't have that many items on it. There's only five or six. It's universal in nature. It would be full of service to humanity. It would not revolve around an individual. And it would be big. It wouldn't be something small. It wouldn't be, um, you know, killing off a part of the population of the country, for instance, which is what you're referring to. So it, that is ignorance. It is ignorance. It is darkness. But you can take those same circumstances and find extraordinary members of humanity there, like our friend Viktor Frankl in the concentration camps. I don't know if you're familiar with him, are you? Second book recommendation for the evening. If you haven't read Man's Search for Meaning, well, he speaks of never before or since experienced joy like he experienced in Auschwitz. So all these so-called dark sides can be very useful for a discovery of one kind or another in the same way that the difficulties we have to face can be very instructive, whatever they are. Thank you, Brian, for your exchange of ideas. Just in terms of kind of vision and, you know, people's paths in life or direction, is it possible at all that, or do you think perhaps there are stumbling blocks? Personal stumbling blocks that people have to overcome by own belief system is that you'll only make, say, as much money in this lifetime as we believe will work. I think I've done one or two okay things with my life and I'm reasonably happy most of the time in my career, but... I've noticed at certain times in my academic year, which I'm still going on with, there's been extreme procrastination. I don't know if anybody else experiences this, but it's almost when yeah. it's just in sight that destructive thing comes in and the, kind of the, the negative voices start. And does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And have you experienced this all? Well, what would you say to us this evening about, you know, because I, I believe we can all do whatever we want, like, and there is now, or will be, you know, a very, very successful vet, whatever, I can do whatever we want. No 
barriers that we want to improve ourselves. We want to hear about that first step about you know, the self and you know, all those huge barriers we create. Well, it's what was referred to in the talk. There's what you have to offer and it's what you have to overcome. And what you have to overcome can keep life very small or you step over these difficulties. But what would help with stepping over the difficulties and dealing with obstacles is to be clear about the vision. So there is a need to get clear about the vision. And if the vision is something like making as much money as possible that will have lots and lots of pitfalls because that's really having a, a distorted view of things that's caught up in the effects of something. For vision to really survive, it has to be true. It has, so it has to have these elements of outside of myself. It has to have an element of service. It has to be connected to that universal sense of vision, bringing happiness, freedom, prosperity and health to humanity in some way. But to become clear about the vision will help to overcome the obstacles. However, not being clear about the vision, you still meet with the obstacles. It just makes it harder, that's all. It's very good to spend time to consider what is the vision? What is guiding this life? What is my purpose here? As we said, we touched on earlier, if God was the manager, where would he put me? Where am I best suited in this world to do the very best job that I can possibly do? The clearer that vision, the less troublesome the obstacles, you brush them aside. Sometimes little tiny obstacles can appear like mountains and you could even feel like giving up. There's a, a lovely Indian sage called Vivekananda. I don't know if you're familiar with Vivekananda. He lived a very short life of only 39 years, but in his short life he had quite an impact on the world. One thing I always remember reading from him was that to never, ever, ever give up. Get clear on the vision and the obstacles are small. Thank you. There's some people in the world that had visions and there were bad visions. Yes. And uh, you can predict the people I'm going to talk about uh, if you take Mussolini, Hitler, yes. all the M's, Hitler and Co. I mean, they had visions that caused a lot of trouble. You could say there's a vision that's based on falsehood and there's a vision that's based on truthfulness. And if you take a character like a Hitler and look at the qualities of the vision, he did have a vision, but it had exclusivity attached to it. So it was a particular vision for one country at the expense of the rest of the creation. Where you see exclusivity would be a warning sign. Selflessness would be a good hallmark of true vision. So if you look to some of these less savoury visions, you're going to find there's a, a selfishness at the root of them. Look for selflessness, inclusivity, also, a sense of bigness, a big picture of things. If you compare someone like a Gandhi to a Hitler, you're talking about someone who could see the whole universe and think of the whole creation, not just a little tiny part. The me reference in the heart you're referring to, where the me is little, the yeah. heart's big, or that's right. small. Enough. Like, if you think, the very smallest reference point is me. 
And a lot of the time our concerns and considerations revolve around me, don't they? Me and mine. So that's a small place to be centered. When you go out from me, what's next? Family. So that's at least one move out. And beyond family? Community? And beyond community? We have nation. And beyond nation, we come out to the, the world situation. Then we go out to the universe. And really, it's about expanding the view. It's about thinking in a different way. Now, Gandhi would have described uh, in his writings that the whole world is one single family. Now, that is just a matter of seeing things like that. Like, we see family as being a, a number of people, you know, with the same name as us who live in the same house. And we habitually think, oh, that's my family, and everybody else is not my family. That is just a way of seeing things. Now, it might take a certain amount of endeavor to shift that view. It is possible to see in a bigger way, to actually see people, you're my brother and you're my sister. It's possible to see like that. So, there is false vision. There's a vision with falseness at its center or there's truthfulness at its center. I would say any decision, any course of action where I'm the only reference point is very suspect. Sorry. It might be considered to be controversial, I don't know, it doesn't really matter. But you mentioned family there, and someone mentioned what happened in Virginia Tech and the number of killings. Would you consider that the person who committed that act was your family? Ordinarily, I probably don't, no. But if you considered it? Or if you thought about it, you would. Or you could bring yourself yes. to see that. Do you know, if, if a member of, of your family, if someone you regard as your family does something wrong, how do you treat them? Say I call to your home tomorrow evening, I'm your brother, and I said, look, I've just carried out some terrible atrocity, and I'm your brother. What's the first thing you'd say to me? I would bring him into the house and make sure he's okay. You'd say, come in. Yes. And what would you then say to me? What's the second thing you'd say to me? Come Sit down. I think if you truly see someone as family, you would embrace and seek to help and seek to care for and seek to look after and respond in a full way. If a so-called member of your actual family you reject, well, you stop seeing them as family. So it would work either way. What's been spoken of here is trying to expand the view to see everybody as family. It would bring a very different view of the people involved, that young man involved in that atrocity in America. If you recall the first little diagram earlier on, we have essential nature. Do you remember this? What's this here? Quality. All the qualities and the talents that we have to offer. And what are these things here? All the unhelpful things. When we look to ourselves, we tend to see this. Don't we? Maybe not always. The general tendency is we can see everyone else's unhelpful traits and tendencies. I know it's a general broad sweep. This is what we have to offer, and this is what each of us need to work on. That's the idea. And don't worry about someone else's unhelpful traits. It's work on our own unhelpful traits and offer our qualities and, and talents on our particular plot. I hope we haven't lost that plot. Have we, we got... Have we? <laughs> what else? Just an observation from earlier. You spoke of the great visionaries and the energy that comes to 
technique mm. that are perceived. And it just reminded me of something that just sprang into my mind, uh, a line from the song, how heavy the hearts that are empty, how light the heart that is full. And it made me think that when we turn away from the, the opportunity to meet needs, we're actually diminishing our own energy. Yeah. And it's a kind of a reminder to, to meet the needs and thereby gain that energy. Yes, no, very good. That's lovely. Yes, excellent. I couldn't improve on that. That's lovely. That's very nice. You see, at any time you resist something, resist doing something or attending to somebody or not wanting to do something, you see the exhaustion quickly follows. Mm -hmm. Even a little dilemma with myself about having the courage to say that kind of, like, do you share it or do you keep it together? Well, very well shared. And that's uplifting too, isn't it, by the way? Yeah, see? Marvellous. What more? Hi, I was just wondering, can you help me understand how clear your vision has to be? I mean, you say that it's within us already and very often it's stirring us within the face. And is it something maybe as general as, in my life I want to be a happy person and by doing so it means that everybody I meet, you know, I try and see a need and therefore service it and therefore I am then a happy, a free and a prosperous person or does it need to be clearer? Clear, yes. You live a particular qualities and attributes and a way of doing that. Otherwise, so I need to understand or to find out within myself yes. what, how I do that. How to serve humanity, how to serve the world. What so it's, it's something I need to aspire to doing then, something I need to actually you decide to do. You'd inquire into it and you'd, you, yes, you'd examine your situation, you'd examine your, yourself, you'd examine the area that you work in and is there a limit on the, the talent and the qualities that you have? How are you best equipped to serve? And is it something that can evolve? Because, you know, starting from, you know, tonight, say, yeah. I know you're saying, you know, the vision should be sort of limitless nearly, you know, but because I'm starting from here, it makes sense to me that maybe I, I pitch it for something I think I can achieve now, but once I achieve that, I'll, I'll see that I can go for, you know, much bigger things or better things or I, I can service in different ways or I can use my talents in different ways. So is it something that continuously evolves as well? Yes, it could have an evolving aspect to it. Discovering how best you are equipped to serve right. and then bringing that to the highest possible ideal. So I was talking to a lady last night and she just had a notion some years ago that people who care for people in the home were really all unsung heroes. And very little would be known about them. So she started an organization that looked after carers, people who care for people. So someone who's at home looking after an elderly mother or a disabled child or people in that situation. Now, being launched today is Carers for Carers Europe. It's an organization of some hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And they had a conference recently with 700 people attending it in the west of Ireland and some politicians were there speaking and this idea of looking after people who care for people has mushroomed into a, a very substantial Europe-wide organization that provides support and information and assistance and respite for people who care for people. It just came out of an idea. She was a nurse, so she had particular qualities and skills and talent 
in that whole area and understood something about it, but saw a particular need and responded to it fully. And uh, she was one very happy lady explaining <coughs> it all to us last night. She probably never thought it could reach the level that it has now. That's what I'm saying. That's right. Your vision needs to be able to evolve. Evolve, well, it needs to evolve, but remember what we said at one point. There has to be a connection with the present and the future. So there has to be that connection and it also can be at the level of humanity. If you take someone like a Mother Teresa, the physical particular act of going out onto the street and helping one individual that's dying is just a very relatively small act, isn't it? It's moving out and helping one person who's dying. On its own, it's a small act. And that's here. It's a particular act. But her sights must have been at the biggest possible view of things. So it's working for humanity in the biggest sense, albeit that the particular act is rather small. So if your view is of humanity, your organization or your work will spread. Does that make sense? So it's like where your sights are. You know, are the sights small? I'm only going to help people in Calcutta. In fact, I'm only going to help people in my neighborhood. Then it would be very good work with a small view. But I w I'm assuming that her work was very good with a very, very big world view. And it would keep growing into that size. So it's like the particular work is one aspect, it's how you see it then is the other aspect. That second aspect determines it, determines where it goes. So in business, someone has a view, uh, they start a little shop and they go on, it becomes a big chain of multinational stores. Someone else starts a shop and it's a little corner shop for 70 years. You know, the initial start might be the same. But isn't it important how we end? Very important how we end. Well, vision is concerned with the two. That's what I liked about that statement. It's about the means and the end. What are the consequences of not ending well? The consequences of not ending well. Well... Fertilizer. <laughs> the what? Fertilizer. Fertilizer. You've stressed that, in, I think, twice in your talk, you actually stressed, yeah. and you made the comment again now, yeah. It's the ending that really counts, the consequences. Why? That piece we were looking at, this piece between Creasus and Solon, what Solon has said, let me find what he says so we can refer to that, is about this idea of ending well. You see, to me you seem very rich and to be a king of many people, but I cannot answer the question before I learn that you have ended your life well. The very rich man is not more fortunate than the man who has only his daily needs unless he chances to end his life with all well. So he is making quite a, an issue of ending well. It does come back to looking at an understanding of what I am and what we regard this life as. And do we think that you know, when that body dies that this life ends? in some way. Do I end and begin and do I have a beginning and an ending as such? 
And what are the consequences if I live life in that body with no regard to what we're talking about? I mean, the consequences of that may be just repetition after repetition after repetition. It might be terrible misery. It may not be possible, for instance, to experience this at all, ever. If, for instance, let's say we forget about these and we just concentrate on our own lives and we remain selfish and self-centered and don't set out to discover this at all, not ending well would be not discovering that. Like the better the ending, the more chance we have of discovering this. It's making a pre-assumption about a life beyond the physical body, yeah? And it goes back to what the gentleman raised just now about who or what is the absolute. Yeah. And what is my view on a naturalistic worldview would say the consequences are irrelevant. Yeah. It's only my comfort zone in the here and now. That's right. Yes. That's a possibility too. You might be left with that question. You might be left with wondering, firstly, who am I or what am I? And what is this thing that's called life? And does it begin with the birth of this body and then with the death of this body? Is that it? So many different teachings, so many different sources, all speaking of, in different ways now, speaking of the perfection, the purity, the completeness of the essence of a human being. In the Christian tradition, this sense of being made in the image of God, what does that mean? Now, in simple terms, you could say that that aspect of me that's made in the image of God is what I'm trying to discover. And I'm using this life to discover that. If I spend this life squandering my substance and not paying any attention to that, according to Solon, the end is important. But I mean, I can't tell you from experience what the end is. If you read some of the traditions where the end has been described, you know, if you read the, the myths in Plato, for instance, where he describes what happens to naughty souls, etc., it's not very nice. So could a vision therefore be interpreted as simply me wanting to feel good? Because if you have the illustration of the person who went hungry to do the veterinary course, uh, that's a wonderful vision. If he didn't have a physical means or she didn't have a physical means to pay to get to Hungary and fill the course, they may have had the vision which was unfulfilled. I would say it's, it's the other way around. It's because of the, the sense of vision that he's found himself in Budapest. He's found himself with the means and the resources because he doesn't technically have the means. But somehow he's found them. But then take advice, if I have a, you know somebody who is crippled or spastic, okay, yes. their vision may simply be to be healthy, which at least as far as we can see is physically possible. It's only have a vision, okay, but it's physically possible. Indeed, physical health would be impossible. Yes, that's true. That's right. So, is a vision not simply what makes me feel good? True vision wouldn't revolve around me. It wouldn't revolve around just me. You couldn't use the word vision for just something that revolves around me. Me wanting to feel better tomorrow morning isn't about vision, it's just me wanting to feel better. Vision is something that guides your life. It might mean you facing all sorts of calamities, all sorts of challenges, all sorts of difficulties. Right, I just wanted to ask about, get a bit of clarity on vision again. I'm wondering how many visions can we have at any one time? In my head, just at the minute, I have the idea that there is a highest tier 
motivation by which our entire lives should be guided uh, and maybe the ideal of that vision might be for knowledge, consciousness and bliss mm. but we're y'all tripping away I'm not sure whether it was an analogy or whether equally that minor vision of happiness for that journey uh, is something that we should also deploy as well yeah. can we have many visions? Well you can, I mean you can have a vision for for anything really, you could have a vision for a business venture, you could have a vision for a holiday. You mightn't use those words, but in a way it would be interesting if they contradicted each other. So in other words, you wouldn't expect them to contradict each other, but you can have different visions. You can have a vision for your children, which would be very particular, that they grew up to be confident and fearless and intelligent and bright human beings that shouldn't contradict whatever sense of vision is guiding your whole life. But it could be very specific in its application. Yes, again, what you would want for your kids may be, for me, more of a goal in a way rather than a vision, that the vision is about the direction in which your life is going rather than more temporal the, the gist of what we are saying here is what, how we intend to be at the end of our life, sort of yeah. targeting vision stuff. And how we live our life. How we live our lives. Yeah. I mean, the sense I have is that one vision I use, whatever talents I've been given, to bring that onto this plot of ground that I have, and whatever that means, should be the focus. But I'm sure in the particular situations that could be described very differently, like happiness on a holiday. Like that happiness on the holiday is a small reflection of, of a bigger view of things. But it could easily have been a disaster. I have the happy and challenging. One of my roles is rearing four boys, and they're all very different individuals. And I'm also very privileged to attend a couple of years of School of Philosophy. <coughs> and for me, and this, to, the, to the lady who's just starting, I would say that exploring this pursuit of happiness, when I haven't been coming to the classes for a while for various reasons, that's something that has remained with me. And it has helped me in so many ways, I think, to guide my children. We had the little drawing of a child earlier <coughs> on when, when yes is right and no is right. And I think if you follow that, the path of life with being mindful of that pursuit of happiness and, and what that means and how you meet the needs, that's something that really, for me in my experience, really guides how it unfolds. Very good. Thank you. Is the vision that, in a way, we should all be striving for be the same one inevitably, and it be knowledge, consciousness, and bliss? To realize that is the universal vision. But how everyone does that is going to be different. So it doesn't bring in a kind of a bland, blamond sameness. So the lady I spoke about last night is, is engaged in very different work than you're engaged in. A lot of people have ambition, but I, I would say few people have vision. Yeah. Does a person need any particular qualities to enable them to realize their own vision? Realize their vision? Yeah. 
I believe it comes from seeing the need. And I believe that we could discuss it forever. And if there's not a clear sighting of need, it will remain discussion. So I think that's the first thing. If you talk about needing qualifications to see the need, it would be just having a heart that's able to perceive a need. So for instance, if my heart is full of concerns for me, it will be greatly reduced, greatly diminished. I was telling somebody there at the break that I look after the youth in the school in Dublin. And nobody would volunteer for that job. It's not the easiest of jobs to do. I certainly would find much more attractive jobs than looking after the young people, you see. What I've noticed over the years is that any time I'm thinking about myself and trying to either avoid looking after them or keep it neat and tidy to suit me, I seem to have no energy and no capacity for anything. The moment that I genuinely think of them and concern for them and their welfare, it's as if someone has come along and filled me up with energy. So it seems to be directly linked to seeing the need and responding to it in a very fulsome way. I think that's the real crux of it. I think everything follows from that. The energy, the sense of inspiration, knowing what to do, knowing how to do it, getting over obstacles. I think everything comes from being able to see the need. And seeing the need is dependent on the state of your heart. So if you wanted to say, how do you begin to work on vision? Clean up the heart might sound like a tall order, but I do believe it's to stop thinking about myself and open out to see what needs are out there. What needs are staring at me in the face all day? Sometimes education, formal education, is a real deterrent, you know, because it, it sways you away from your idealism of 16, 17. Your ideas are your own ideas then, they're not formed by other people. Yeah. And education does this. And I think this is kind of what has happened with, with my son. He, he was very focused when he was younger. He is not so focused now, and he's a very intelligent young man, and a very well-read young man. But he's gone in all directions, and I'm at a loss as to what to say or do. Because mm. he feels now like a failure. He feels he is a failure. Yeah. You're so idealistic when you're young, and then you get all, everything comes in, you know, there's negatives and positives, and you get lost along the way. Well, you just go home and assure me he's still young, at 26. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if he doesn't know what to do, go and do something for somebody. Yeah. Or is that just men, I wonder? Because my daughter is very focused. <laughs> <laughs> just encourage him to do something useful. What else? Is there a difference between thinking and dreaming? They could be. It just depends on what we mean by thinking. Certainly dreaming is just dreaming, isn't it? You mean daydreaming. Vision and dream are two different things. So vision is you clearly see something that needs to be addressed and you respond to it. And there's a direct link with what's happening right now and the future. 
They're not separate. Dreaming, you know Onslow in Keeping Up Appearances? He's a dreamer. <laughs> He's sitting there in front of the TV, drinking beer, talking about everything and how it should all be done. You might hear some people say things like, I would start something if I had the money, or if I had this, or if I had that. Well, they would generally be falling into the category of dream. The visionary wouldn't have that type of conversation. They would be starting. They would be engaged and working and overcoming all those obstacles as they meet them. There's a direct link with action. It's, but this is the same with anything. If you, if you want to know what someone truly believes, you look to what they do, not what they say. What they say is very easy. It's actually what the person does you look towards. That's why when you're interviewing someone for a job, you should look at what have they done, not what are they saying. And you track the person's record and you look at what they've actually done. But there is a large difference between dreaming and vision. Now thinking, a lot of the time, who are we thinking about? If you look into thinking, you know, it's concerns about me and mine and what me's going to do and how's me's going to do it and how are we going to get it done before Friday and what are we starting on Monday and it can be quite small and very burdensome. I had this debate recently actually with another gentleman in the school in Dublin. We were looking at this. What exactly is thinking? See? What exactly is intelligent use of mind? In the discussion we arrived at a not so much a conclusion, but we arrived at a point where we said that most of what the mind presents to us all day has very little value. It's like mind is continuously presenting subjects and things for consideration and things to think about and worry about and if there is a little space we seem to want to put something in there to worry about it anyway. So, in the light of that, I've been looking at this recently, this idea that most of what the mind presents is of very little value. If you apply yourself to what you're actually doing, you don't need all the running commentary and the so-called busyness of that head. Most of it is a waste of time. It's talking to ourselves. it's speculating about tomorrow, mulling over something from yesterday. And a lot of it is actually called thinking, but really it's very, very suspect. Goals are steps. If you set a goal, you'll be still taking the steps, but you also said if we have a vision, we would be taking steps or doing something now towards the vision. It's not so much towards as it's guided by. Yeah. If you see the vision as that's what guides you, yeah. and the steps are how that's all being enacted. But I can't see the difference in setting a goal. Just say in a work situation you would set a goal. Yes. I can see that as the same as having a vision towards it, and you would be taking the steps. It's not quite the same. If you think of the holiday trip I described, mm, what was the vision? Happiness for the family, yeah. right? The goals were Cashel Palace and yeah. Yall by six. None of those materialized. All right, okay, so you still... The goals changed completely because of the vision. Right, okay. You with me? Yeah. Adhering to the vision allowed for the goals to change. Right. 
I could have chosen to stick with the goals and right. forgot about the vision, which is often what happens in life. Right, okay. We get caught up in the goals and forget about the vision. Right. So we could equally find ourselves caught up in all the detail and the goals of everyday events at the moment, and we might have very little sense of this great universal vision that we spoke so we of. So we changed goals to get to the vision? No, the goals changed if you adhere to vision. Right, okay. Where does the vision come from, Brad? Seeing the need, appreciation of the need. Does it come from the mind or the heart? You'd employ all aspects, the whole person's employed. So physical, mental and emotional. But really it's through the heart that we see. You can see it in the very smallest of detail. A person with a closed heart can't see very much. They're too concerned with their own setup. So it does require a big heartedness or an open heartedness. Like if there's work to be done, I believe that's the work to be done. Opening up the heart, big heartedness is needed. You could have a compassion and then you have a vision of who you want to help or what you want to do, we should say. I think compassion would be part of your response. But the sense I get is it's drawn from you more than you have to actually engineer it. I think I'll be compassionate today. I don't think it quite works like that. I think if the heart's open, needs are seen, and the natural response is drawn from you. Yeah. And there are times when we are very open and responsive to other people, and we see things that are needed, simple things. And there are other times when it's not quite so open and we don't see what's needed. This universal vision of happiness and freedom and well-being is in everything you see. It might not mean a single possible change in any of our circumstances or situations. It might be a shift internally that's required. Nothing else. If the vision is clear, it encourages faith, especially in times of adversity. Or not just adversity, with even positive distractions. If you're married to the right person, you don't keep looking over your shoulder for someone else. If you're employed in the right job, nothing, nothing appears attractive other than what you're engaged in. So from clarity of vision, there's tremendous faith just to persevere and keep going, and downsides and negative events don't have anything like the same impact. I was just thinking there, we seem to be pushing visionaries further and further and talking about famous people and making it appear to be an almost impossible to reach it. And in fact, all of us are in contact with visionaries every day of our lives with ordinary people who aren't famous, yeah. but they have a vision and are doing maybe wonderful things within their family, within their community, within a very small area. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful people who are bumping into every day of the week and coming into. And the way that the discussion has kind of gone, it's, it's appearing that Mother Teresa, the Pope, so and so. But 
ordinary people in very ordinary circumstances. Some of them are amazing visionaries. No, absolutely, and we may even be surrounded by them in the room here. Absolutely. No, you're quite right. And it's good not to push it far away. That statement that I started with this evening. Yes, man must use his intelligence, that's all of us, to visualize the true will of the absolute, acting accordingly, in full consideration of the universe, transcending all limitations. That can be a moment-by-moment -moment thing. Like this evening, right now, we can, in any circumstances, visualize the true will of the Absolute. The true will of the Absolute. So in every moment we have this sense of there's my will and there's thy will. Every moment. Thy will right now will be simply participate, listen, if you're discussing something, think of the whole group. It's very immediate and very simple. Acting accordingly, so it's visualizing it in one way, then acting accordingly is actually following through and actually doing it. In full consideration of the universe, which sounds like we said, it sounds like maybe too far away. It's really in consideration for all rather than in consideration for me and what me wants. Transcending all limitations, what's that mean? Like what kind of obstacles could meet us this evening before we retire even? Yeah, exactly. I don't really want to speak to that lady. I don't really want to let her out in the traffic. It could be very simple things. I'm afraid to do this. I'm not able to do that. I'm not up to this. I'm not up to that could be anything. So that statement, while it sounds beautiful, and it is beautiful, can apply to every moment. Can a parent pushing their views on a young person hamper their vision? Oh, they could easily. Sorry, we could easily. Yeah. <laughs> I think very easily. There's a fine line between encouraging and being reasonable and helping and pushing and forcing to suit the parent. It's to truly uh, discuss and help them. But do you know the way you would help a best friend? You might question and explore, and you are truly not concerned so much with the outcome. You're genuinely trying to help them for their sake. Well, it's that type of approach rather than helping them for your sake. But to help them for their sake would be a healthy attitude and advise like you would a very good friend rather than, you know, a strict parent who wants their son or daughter to do a certain thing for them or for their sake. But it, it, I wouldn't abdicate either. So it's not abdication and it's not interference and control. It's genuinely helping them to follow what's in their heart. Like what's truly in their heart will be a good starting point. And then being able to help them see 
what's truly there from fads and fantasies and points and all sorts of ideas. Like this daughter of mine who has put down drama as her first choice in Trinity, right? Has gone through an interview and has been accepted. And I have listened to her a few times since, and I, I wonder, I do wonder, is that what she really, truly wants to do? I think she's hoping she gets the second choice. But she hasn't actually said that. But you're just listening to her talking about it. She's not bubbling over with, oh, look, I've been accepted. I haven't heard her telling anyone. I think you might have answered it partly just there, but I'm wondering about the need for patience and confidence when it comes to one's vision. I'm just thinking about the young person who knew he wanted to be a vet. And when you were telling the story, I really got a sense that I could feel he really wanted to be a vet. Yeah. And when he had to go back and repeat the leaving cert, there was a need for a lot of patience there because he wanted to be a vet. He didn't really want to be doing his leaving cert. No, that's right. But actually, when I was speaking to him, it was like we were just been talking there now. There was no trouble him repeating his leaving. And it was interesting because the second time he repeated, he did it, I think he did it three times. The second time he repeated, he was just absolutely as happy as Larry. And there was not too much speaking about it either. He just did it. He's a quiet enough chap by nature, but there wasn't too much speaking. And I noticed him. And he knuckled down. He must have had to exercise some patience, yes. There was a trouble-free feel to it. And what do you think the patience was attributed to? If he really wanted to be a vet, you know, how come he was so, I suppose, happy to wait to be mm. looking after the animals? I think he was clear about what he wanted to do. Crystal clear. He had no doubt about what he wanted to do. And I wasn't surprised to hear all the changes and chops and then to find he was suddenly in Budapest studying and... I wasn't surprised at all. I think it's just clarity of the sense of vision with regard to his career and where he feels he's best suited. I think that's what does it, the clarity. So it's not that he needed to be a vet today? Oh, no. One could do whatever needed to be done and be patient doing it and... Absolutely. I think if you were taking one tiny step in the right direction, you'd be blissfully happy. Okay. Rather than, you know, suffering or experiencing that dichotomy of maybe knowing something and not doing it. I think once you're facing the right direction, you'll be very happy. Thank you. Thank you. It's time to go home, I think, is it? You have to go home? Oh, you visionaries? <laughs> All right, folks, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.